Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for coming into your sanctuary, being reflective a little bit more about your presence, about your way, about your word, about your will. Open our minds and our thoughts. Let us receive from you so that we may go out this week having been refreshed, renewed, and enlightened. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was emailed this poem not too long ago, and, and I wanted to start our time uh, this morning with it. I, I thought it was somewhat fitting to what uh, Paul is going to be talking about in this section of Colossians. It's called the New School Prayer, and it says this. Now I sit me down in school where praying is against the rule. For this great nation under God finds mention of him very odd. If scripture now the class recites, it violates the Bill of Rights. And any time my head I bow becomes a federal matter now. Our hair can be purple, orange, or green. That's no offense. It's a freedom scene. The law is specific. The law is precise. Prayers spoken aloud are a serious vice. For praying in a public hall might offend someone with no faith at all. In silence alone we must meditate. God's name is prohibited by the state. We're allowed to cuss and dress like freaks and pierce our noses, tongues, and cheeks. They've outlawed guns, but first, the Bible, to quote the good book, makes me liable. We can elect a pregnant senior queen and the unwed daddy, our senior king. It's inappropriate to teach right from wrong. We're taught that such judgments do not belong. We can get our condoms and birth controls, study witchcraft, vampires, and totem poles, but the Ten Commandments are not allowed. No word of God must reach this crowd. It's scary here, I must confess. When chaos reigns, the school's a mess. So, Lord, the silent plea I make, should I be shot, my soul, please take. Powerful words, right? You know, it's not just the school where God's word is being forgotten. It's not just in the school where we're teaching not to obey God. It's in much of our society. And so as we come to this section in the book of Colossians, I want us to think about what it means to submit to the, to the Lord, what it means to be obedient to God. As we come to Colossians 3, 18 to 4, 1, the first section of our, our scripture this morning, we see that ta Paul is talking about submitting. And in this section, he talks about Submitting husbands to wives, uh, husbands and wives, parents and children, slaves and masters, and even are submitting to God himself. Now, of course, submitting is a state of mind, an attitude of the heart. It, it actually is a, a change of heart, as we talked about last week, of putting off our, our selfish desires, our sin, selfish sins, so that we can put on the new clothes of God. Submitting is part of those new clothes. God wants us to understand submitting, wants to put that on. See, our natural tendency is to be independent, even independent from God. That's why Adam and Eve wanted to eat of the fruit, because they felt like they were lacking something. They wanted to know good and evil, have the knowledge of good and evil, just like God did. And so there's this independent spirit in them that caused them to eat of the fruit. See, this idea of submitting goes against this attitude of wanting to be held back. We don't want to be held back. We feel like submitting holds us back. 
But Paul is getting practical with us. He's teaching us how to be Christians in our everyday life, in our everyday relationships. So Paul starts with husbands and wives. Now I know in our society in this time, this whole concept of submitting a wife to her husband is very controversial, right? It goes against everything that society teaches. So how do we talk about that and have it make sense? Well, first of all, we need to understand the historical setting, the context in which it's written. Back in Paul's time, basically, a husband owned his wife. I mean, at any time, a husband could divorce his wife, but a wife in no way could ever initiate divorce. Basically, the wife was to, a husband could demand of his wife complete submission and servitude. So when Paul writes Colossians 3, 18 to 19, he's trying to give some balance to this relationship, to give a Christian perspective on it. There's already to be a submitting of the wife to the husband, but, but, the, but Paul goes further and says, husbands, love your wives. And then he'll explain that as he talks about there being mutual submission, care, and concern between the two. See, it didn't matter what the law said. God's law was higher and had higher expectations of this relationship. And so in verse 19, he says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, to give this more balance, you need to go over to Ephesians 5, where he talks more about this relationship with husbands and wives. Ephesians 5, 21 to 25, Paul says, Submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. That's where the whole passage begins. Now, if you look in the Bible and you're going through Ephesians, you'll actually see that that verse is the last verse of one section, and in the next section it says husbands and wives. But that verse I just read actually belongs to the sections on husbands and wives. It says, submit one to another. That is the starting place. Then it says, wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And what kind of head is the husband supposed to be? Well, he says in Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And what? Gave himself up for her. So what kind of love is the, the husband supposed to have? He's supposed to have a servant Love, right? As Christ gave himself for his church, so husbands are to give yourselves to your wives. You're to be a servant to your wife. You're to make sure that her every need is met. You're to care for her and love her deeply. You're to give yourself fully over to her as you are submitting to the Lord. And then in this context, it says, wives, submit to your husbands. So a wife is submitting to this complete servant, a servant who is caring for his wife's every need. It is not a dictatorship. It's not a tyrant. It is not a husband being able to say, you do this, and the wife does whatever the, the husband says. It is not that. It is a, it's a husband loving his wife with a servant heart and a servant attitude. And, her wife giving herself, and the wife giving herself over to her husband in that way. See, this is a wonderful passage because it teaches us the concept that submission 
is to one who serves us. Christ was a servant to the church. Remember, it says, Christ came not to be served, but to serve. He had the authority to command and direct, but he didn't do that. He served the people. That is what the husband is to do. This was groundbreaking words by Paul in this time. And if more couples heeded these words, I think there would be far less marital problems and far lower divorce rate. But next, Paul turns his attention to the relationship between parents and children. Now, children at that time had even less rights than the wife. They basically were under the domination of their parents. A parent could do anything they wanted to with their children, even sell them into slavery if they wanted to. In essence, their children was like their property. But Paul is trying to help the Colossians understand that there's a greater idea here between the relationship of a parent and a child. They need to have a, a deeper, more meaningful relationship as, as one would have with God, a deep, intimate, caring, loving relationship between parent and child. Again, it should not be tyrannical. It should have depth. It should have intimacy. So Paul says in verse 20, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Paul starts with the role of the child. Children are to be obedient to their parents. First, because a child doesn't know what is right and wrong, what is good and bad. And so as parents, we lead our children to understand that, even though they think they know right and wrong, especially when they become teenagers, right? You know that, right? You guys have had teenagers. You know when they get to that teenage stage? They're like, yeah, I know everything. I'm good. I don't need you anymore. You heard that, you know, where they, they get to the place where they don't think they need you anymore, and then, then when they get to college, maybe they need you a little bit more, and then when they have children, they're like, oh, I need my mom and dad a lot. <laughs> Boy, my parents really got smart all of a sudden, didn't they? Children, obey your parents, because we're to guide them. Second, it's because... The parents have been given the role of authority over their children. And third, because when a child disobeys, it disrupts that relationship between child and parent. I know that when my children have had moments when they were defiant before me, it changed my perspective, it changed my relationship, it changed the way I, I dealt with them and related to them. But Paul doesn't stop there. He goes back to the parents telling them to develop a loving, growing, responsible relationship with their children, productive. So he says to fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. You probably experienced this. I know I did at times when maybe I'm a little harsh, a little hard on my children. Maybe I punished them a little bit stronger than maybe I should have. And I kind of affected their their feelings of who they were as people. Maybe they felt unloved. Maybe they felt beaten down. And I need to, to give them a little extra care, a little extra love to restore that relationship, to build them up again. We have a responsibility, no matter what age our children are, to make sure that that relationship is deep and intimate and there's a good, growing, working relationship together. But third, Paul turns his attention to slaves and masters. While God does not support slavery, it was a practice at the time. And so basically, Paul was trying to say, well, this exists, so 
I can't change the laws necessarily, but I can hopefully change the practice between masters and slaves. Paul's trying to make a, a bad situation a little better. He's trying to get masters to treat their, their slaves with love and respect. See, a, a slave was seen as a thing in that day. They had no rights. They couldn't marry. If they had children for some reason, that the child became the master's child. They had no rights at all. And he's trying to get the, the master to change his thinking from what do they owe me to what do I owe others and how can I help them become the people that God has created them to be? So he says, and when you see the yellow, please read with me. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. And do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart <clears throat> as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Oh, I'll stop there. Lord Christ that you are serving. So Paul knows that the life of a slave is grueling, it's demanding, it's disheartening, and so he gives them three encouragements in this passage. He's trying to help them understand that as Christians, they have to be obedient to the authority to which they find themselves. Because it is their duty and because their disobedience will give the masters a reason to come down hard on them, even harder than they might normally do. Paul gives them a fresh perspective, and that is to do their work as if they were serving the Lord, which in the end, isn't that what we're all doing? We're, we live our lives. We live our lives for the Lord to serve the Lord. And so he says, if you, if you think about doing the work for the Lord and not worrying about it doing for the Master, then you can live your life with joy and meaning and purpose. And know that God will bless you in this time right now as you do your work, and God will bless you, have a reward for you in heaven. And isn't, in essence, that's how we should treat our jobs? I mean, sometimes we might look at our bosses like a master, right? Or even the job itself that has its demands. But if we don't look at the job, if we don't look at our boss, we're not doing it for them. If we're, we're living our life and serving in our work for the Lord, then it changes our whole perspective of work. And it helps us to, to do it with joy. And it helps us to do it in a way that allows us to, to enjoy it, to try to bear fruit through what God has called us to do. But he has a word for the masters also. He says in 4.1, Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. See, as a Christian, a master was to treat his slaves differently than a master who was not a Christian. They were to let their slaves have some rights. Paul's here, words here, again, are transformative in the time. I mean, no master would ever think about giving their slaves rights. And Paul says, treat them right, treat them fairly, give them rights, love them, build them up, don't break them down. And he was changing this whole perspective. Why? Because you have a master in heaven. And what is it all about? Wives and husbands, children and parents, masters and slaves, what is it all about? Submitting ourselves to God. 
to live the life that God has called us to live and to be in right relationships with one another. He then goes to the next section in 4.2 to 4.6, talking about the opportunities God gives us when we have conversations with non-Christians, talking about the importance of prayer, and talking about making our conversations meaningful. Have you ever been in one of those, you know, when you first meet someone, it's that really awkward time, isn't it? You're trying to talk to them, and there's just a lot of little small talk, right? Like, oh, how are you? Uh, how was your day? Oh, fine. And how was your day? Oh, it's good. And, and, you know, what's going on? What's your name? Oh, you know, Chris. And, you know, I mean, it's just like really awkward time when you first meet someone. I mean, like small talk with no meaning at all in the conversation, right? I don't know about you, but I have really difficult times in conversations like that. It's like agonizing for me. Like, you know what? Tell me your deepest, darkest secret. Just go ahead and do it. Let's get it out of the way, right? And then we'll really know each other, right? Our conversations need to be meaningful, and Paul's going to talk about that. So first, we see that prayer is essential to Paul in our faith and in our living, especially as we're thinking about serving the Lord. See, the problem for many about prayer is that they don't understand prayer. They think that prayer is just these words spoken to an unseen God, right? An invisible God. And so they don't have depth in their prayer, and they don't understand how prayer can be deep, how prayer can be meaningful, how prayer can be powerful. If you don't understand prayer, then you can't really appreciate or take in the fullness of what prayer is to be about. So to set up this section, I want to read this, uh, this piece I came across called uh, Interview with God. And so let me read it for you. I dreamt I had an interview with God. Come in, God said. So you would like to interview me? If you have time, I said. God smiled and said, my time is eternity and enough to do everything. What questions do you have in mind to ask me? So the first question I asked was, what surprises you most about mankind? And God answered, that by thinking anxiously about the future, they forget the present such that they live neither for the present nor the future that they live as if they will never die, and they die as if they have never lived. I then asked, as a parent, what are some of life's lessons you want your children to learn? God replied with a smile, to learn that what is most valuable is not what they have in their lives, but who they have in their lives. To learn that it is not good to compare themselves to others. All will be judged individually on their own merits, not as a group on a comparison basis. To learn that it is not always enough that they be forgiven by others, but they have to forgive themselves. I sat there for a while, enjoying the moment. I thanked him for his time and for all that he had done for me and my family. And he replied, anytime. I'm here 24 hours a day. All you have to do is ask for me, and I'll answer. Wouldn't it be great to have an interview with God? Wouldn't that be great to have God sitting there and say, and he says, what do you want to ask me? And I'm sure you have a whole list of questions you would want to ask God, right? How great it would be to have an interview with God. Well, you know what? That is what prayer is. Prayer is an opportunity for us to connect with God, to talk with God, to share with God, to listen and, and hear from God. See, through prayer, we connect with God. The Psalms, if you ever read the Psalms, pretty much all of them, or at least most of them, are prayers to God. Like Psalm 4.1, where it says, Answer me when I 
call to you, O my righteous God. Give me the relief from my distress. Be merciful to me and hear my prayer. You can hear the psalmist wants to have this deep connection with God. Or in Psalm 17:1, Hear, O Lord, my righteous plea. Listen to my cry. Give ear to my prayer. It does not rise from deceitful lips. And on and on the psalms go. The psalmist praying, opening their heart, connecting with God, wanting to receive from God. But secondly, prayer is an opportunity for us to ask God to help us, to open doors for us as we go through life, right? You're praying for a person to have a conversation with. You're praying for an opportunity for a job, or you're praying for for something where God can open a door and guide you in that way that he wants you to go. And so we pray and we pray so that God will open those doors. John 14, 13 to 14, Jesus says, And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. And then Matthew 21, 22, If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. And so the scripture gives us understanding that as we seek God and we know God and we learn God's will for our lives, he says, ask anything you want that's within my will, that's in my name, that will glorify me, and I will give it to you. That is the open door that God has for us. See, it is by the power of God's of prayer that God's spirit begins to work in us and, and fill us all the more and guide us in the right direction. It is through prayer that we understand that God's presence is there, that God's power is with us, that we don't have to do it on our own. Paul says in Colossians 4, 5 to 6, be wise in the way that you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. And so we come to God in prayer and we, we spend time with prayer and we listen to God in prayer, we listen to God in prayer, and then he, he directs us and he gives us the understanding of what we are to say to others, the words that we are to speak to others. He says, make your conversation full of grace. We must live our lives with eyes wide open for the opportunities that God gives us and we are prepared for those opportunities when we spend time with God in prayer. There's a story of a, a boy, a young boy, who was blind, and he was sitting on these steps leading up to a building, and he had a hat next to him, and he had a sign, and his sign said, I am blind, please help. And this man was walking up the steps, and as he looked down, he saw the hat, and it didn't have much money in it at all. And he threw some money in, and then he got a thought. He asked the boy if he could change what his sign said, and the boy said it was okay. And so the man turned the sign over, and he wrote down some words, he gave it back to the boy, and on he went. Later that day, he came back, and the boy was still sitting there, but the hat was overflowing with money. And he said hello to the boy again, and the boy recognized his voice, and, he's, and the man said, boy, I see that you've received a lot more donations. And the boy said, yes. What did you write on my sign? And the man said, well, I really just wrote the same thing that you wrote. I just used a little bit different words. He says, I wrote, today is a beautiful day, but I cannot see it. See, both said that the boy was blind. But the second one reminded people that they were able to enjoy with their eyes the beautiful day. And this boy could not, and he needed their help. And so out of the gratefulness of their being able to see, people gave more generously. But see, the sad thing is, 
is that so many people are blinded. Blinded to what a difference it makes in their life to have Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. To have a deep relationship, a deep connection with God. They fail to see that they are blinded to it. But how much more should we be grateful and thankful for those of us who do know that? And how much should we go out and try to tell people about this relationship we have with God so that others cannot be blinded to it, so that they can see the goodness and the wonder and the glory of being in this amazing, magnificent relationship with God? We have that opportunity. And so through prayer, we gain knowledge of God's ways. And then we live out those ways, and then we are to share those ways with others. So this whole section that we just went through, Colossians 3.18 to 4.6, is basically about submitting to God. When we humble ourselves before God and submit to God, then we will be more likely to have good relationships in our lives. We will be devoted to prayer, and we will seek to not only live out our faith, but to share that faith with others. See, this is at the core of what Paul wants the Colossians to know, at the core of what God wants us to know as Christ followers. And so we've made it through the book of Colossians. We've finished the book of Colossians. And so just to highlight what we studied, we talked about how there's heresies all around us. There's worldly pressures all around us, right? We have to deal with those on a daily basis. Therefore, we are to stand strong in our faith, to hold fast to our faith, to the lordship of Christ in our lives. Every day we should wake up reminding ourselves, Jesus Christ is my Savior and my Lord. The Holy Spirit is with me to guide me. We must be devoted to prayer. Prayer is essential as Christ followers. To connect for open doors, for the opportunity to connect with other people, and lastly, we must understand that our goal in life should be to become mature believers in Christ. Let us pray.